Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we have, this gift that you've given us. And ask that this morning our hearts, our affections, our minds would be turned towards you. Thank you, Father, for your love, your peace, and your presence with us, your shalom, even when it doesn't make sense. Go before us now, Lord. Amen. So um, the city of Philippi, I want to do just some brief history of the region and the area and the city itself before we kind of continue uh, this morning, because I feel like where the story takes place is almost a character um, in itself. So Philippi is a Roman colony, and that means a, a lot of things. It's a military town. That's where lots of people, lot, lots of military leaders and officers would go to retire. Um, it was after the Battle of Philippi that happened in 42 BC. Augustus refounded this uh, little Macedonian city, basically with army veterans. Because what soldiers would do is they would serve in the Roman Empire, and then they would go and they would uh, they would conquer and they would win wars. And the whole time they're thinking, my reward later is that I'm going to get land, I'm going to get influence, I'm going to get property somewhere. And Philippi was one of those colonies. Um, and so to understand, you get like think of Philippi like San Diego. It's a military town. Uh, lots of, uh, you know, currently serving military and former military are all over the place. And actually, I've got a map of the city I want to share with you guys. Um, let me pop it up here. So this is uh, what ancient Philippi would have looked like um, at the time. And you can kind of see uh, there's a few things I want to point out. On, uh, through the middle of the city, you see a road. And that's called the Via Ignatia in Latin or the Ignatian Way in English. And it was a road that connected east and west. It went from all the way to uh, Byzantium. And you can see kind of some of the things that they've unearthed from ancient Philippi. You can see the forum. You can see a shrine. You can see a cistern. Uh, If you go to Philippi today, they'll, they'll show you this little cistern and be like, this is where Paul was in prison. There's no evidence of that. It was just a cistern. But anyway, it's called Paul's prison, one of the archaeological sites there's a theater and then there's a stream on the east side of the city and that's kind of where we see that uh, Paul went with Silas to look for the place of prayer by the running water so you can imagine that they went through the Neapolis gate and on the Ignatian way and went to the stream looking for people to worship with on that Saturday morning but something else I want to point out about the Via Ignatia is this was what it looked like. This is the uh, like route 66 of the Roman empire connecting east and west. And there are parts of it you can actually still walk on today. And here's a map of it that going all the way. So what it would do, it was could connect the peninsula of Italy with mainland Europe. And so they would take a boat and they would sail across the Adriatic sea and they'd land in Duraccium. And then they would take this road and travel all the way through all these cities through Thessaloniki, which is where of course Paul goes next week and we'll pick up the story there next week. And then of course through Philippi. Now part of the reason I want to talk about this is that this is, this is where the part of the world where I come from. So uh, Duracium over here on the far left is modern day Duras. And it's about, I guess now probably like a 45 minute drive from where I grew up, the home that I grew up in. Because uh, this whole section right here, the first three cities, Claudiano and I think it's Masio Scampa, were all in Albania, where I grew up. And then you can see, of course, how the road continues on 
into Thessaloniki. I was actually born in Thessaloniki. My parents were missionaries in Kosovo at the time. And so uh, I'm just really, really excited uh, to be able to share this week just because it feels like I'm sharing a, just a little bit from home um, and some of the culture that I get to grow up, grow up in and around. So the history is really fun, um, but uh, all of this hopefully will give flavor and context as we continue on through the story. So let's pick up in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, I want to talk about uh, this girl really briefly. Um, the word divination isn't actually there uh, in the Greek. The word that's used there um, is uh, she had a spirit of python in her. And python is uh, not even euphemistically means divination. Um, it's the python spirit was linked to the oracle of Delphi. Um, at the time in Southern Greece, who would tell the future. And I want to read a quote um, from Plutarch, who was, an, uh, who was a priest of the Oracle of Delphi. And he said this, the God himself, after the manner of ventriloquists, now called, or called now Pythoness, enters the bodies of his prophets and prompts their utterances. Okay, so there's she has this, what, what's called as a spirit of Python in her that leads her to be able to tell fortunes. Um, and uh, what, what's interesting about this is that her owners, right, would, uh, had much gain because of all the money that she made. Um, there are some estimates that would say that she probably, well, uh, they would say that she would make a drachma and two oboes per fortune that she would tell. And that's about um, a day and a third's wages is how much she would make per time she would tell someone's fortune. So let's say she does that 10 times in a day. She's making these guys, some, some estimates are as high as like $8 million a year. My estimate was closer to $500,000 a year, but either way, she's making these guys an absolute ton of money uh, for literally sitting on their backsides uh, doing nothing. So let, let's keep reading. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. There's a few things that I want to point out about this interaction um, that, that, really, that really stand out to me. The first is there is power in the demonic. I think sometimes we think about the demonic and we think about it as something ethereal that isn't real, something that doesn't even really affect us uh, today. Uh, but we know there's power in the demonic because of other places in scripture. And they wouldn't have been furious that the demon was cast out of her unless the demon was actually giving her power to tell the future. So we can see that there's genuine spiritual power at using, going through people here in the, one of the most modern cities of its time. Okay. Um, so that's the first point I want to make is that there's power in the demonic. And we see that Paul and Silas are actually 
fairly, they're undisturbed in Philippi. See, they're just going to the place of prayer. And it actually says they're uh, going to the place of prayer again. And that's when they're confronted uh, by, by this fortune teller. And uh, it, it's interesting that as soon as they confront the powers of the demonic, that's when all hell breaks loose on them. And I want to read um, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12, really quick. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I think sometimes we, I, get so preoccupied with life here and now, the physical, the, the tangible, that I forget how much of a battle we're fighting in the heavenly realms and something to be really aware of. So the first point I want to make, remember, is that there is power in the demonic. The second point I want to make is that believers have authority over demons. If you look at this interaction, you look at interactions throughout the scriptures of Jesus or disciples interacting with demons, it, it, it happens like this. Paul just addresses the demon directly. Look what he says. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. There isn't a petition. There isn't a Lord, if this is your will, Paul knows exactly where he ranks. He knows where the demon ranks. And he says, demon go you demon go now. We have the living spirit of God inside us. And we have it uh, to see the fruit of the spirit in our lives. We have it for a myriad of reasons. And we have it uh, because it gives us authority and command in the spiritual places. Second Corinthians 10, three says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is something, family, during this time where there's heavy oppression everywhere, where we can sense a spirit of anxiety, we can sense worry and anxiousness in the world around us, that we have, we have according to the Bible, divine power to destroy strongholds. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, boy, how am I going to use my divine power today, right? But that's the reality. The scriptures tell us we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, and my final point that I want to make about this interaction. Number three, it's not just, that the, it's not just the message that it's important, but the way it's communicated is important. Look at verse 17 with me. Oh, sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. Verse 17. She followed Paul crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That seems pretty true to me, right? It's what's interesting to me is demons throughout the scriptures actually have really excellent theology. You'll find oftentimes when you see Jesus or anyone encountering demons, you know, even James says, you believe God is one good. Even demons believe and shudder. You know, they were there. They've got great theology. Their allegiance lies somewhere else, obviously, but they've got great theology. So why does Paul rebuke her for telling the truth? 
I think it's because the way we communicate the message we've received is so important. This is legitimately one of the reasons I have so many problems with uh, street preaching or sandwich board preaching or yelling into a, micro, into a megaphone on a street corner. We don't see that's how they did it during Jesus' day. We don't see the early disciples doing that. In fact, we see Paul being so annoyed by someone literally just shouting, screaming the truth on the sidewalk that he casts a demon out, right? I was actually talking with a guy this week um, who was telling me that he does street preaching. And I thought, wow, I've never met one of you not on the street. (laughs) And uh, we were talking and he said, hold on, I wrote down what he said. He said, my job is just to be faithful. It doesn't matter if I'm preaching condemnation or salvation. I'm just supposed to be faithful. And the sad part about that is that in so many ways, he's ending the conversation before it even has a chance to begin. And we're not called to, quote, just be faithful. We are, but we're called to engage with the message we have in real ways that make a difference. We're called to step out and be in relationship with people. We're called to engage in a way that matters, not just feel like we have a message. So if we shout it, we've done our job to ease our conscience. Our job is to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and share it with the world. And that doesn't mean just screaming it. That means actually taking the time, the thought, the strategy of engaging with relationships. Like Rick talked about last week, going to cities, finding the person of peace, not wasting efforts uh, elsewhere where things aren't working, but going, seeking, being strategic, knowing, and then sharing the good news. So I just think, I just think it's funny that the apostle Paul uh, shut her down. So, okay. Those are the three points I wanted to make about this interaction. Number one, there's power in the demonic. Number two, believers have authority over demons. And number three, it's not just the message that it's important, but it's the way that it's communicated that matters. Okay, let's, uh, let's keep going. So they take, uh, they take Paul and Silas and they drag them before uh, the magistrates, right? This is verse 19. When her owner saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I want to pause here. There is a ton behind this statement, but we don't have time for it today because there's so much that goes on in this story. So we're going to just just tuck verses 20 and 21 away in your minds for next week, and we'll kind of pick up that motif and that story next week. But for today, let's keep reading. Verse 22, the crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is, I mean, this is crazy. The magistrates here, they're, think of uh, magistrates like the chiefs of police. They were in charge of keeping the order for a city. And there was two assigned to every colony. So, they're, they're literally dragged before the people in the city, the authorities, and the authorities have them stripped naked in honor-shame society and beaten in front of a crowd. I mean, 
Yeah. Just this is this is an awkward thing, but I want you to imagine yourself in front of a crowd. First of all, just stripped naked and then beaten. Not a bright day. Not a great day. Uh, it yeah. I think for me, um, I would feel so terribly about myself at this moment. I would feel like we had, you know, we had a vision of this man from Macedonia. We show up, we don't, we show up in the city and we don't even find a synagogue, but we see some, some ladies worshiping by the river. And so one household has been saved and we've been here for a month and everyone's Roman and no one's converting. And it's just this crazy thing. Um, and now, now I've been stripped and I've been beaten and I'm being put in stocks for the night. My spirit would be so crushed. You guys, I don't know if you're doing this in quarantine where uh, you're making a list of all the things that are going wrong in your head, the things that you don't get to do, the, the things that are different, the, 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 the confinement, and you're just thinking about all these building blocks and you're making a case in your head for why you're feeling oppressed or why you're feeling down or why you're feeling anxious. Maybe I'm the only one. And I can just imagine myself in this prison cell doing that, counting up, making the list of the things that have gone wrong. So let's read verse 25, the next verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? They're sitting there, bruised and beaten, battered, and they're worshiping. Can we just sit for a moment in awe of that? They're in such dark circumstances, and yet they're singing praises to God in that moment. You know, this last week, I was doing my daily Bible reading, and uh, I was actually uh, uh, meeting with Derek Williams either that day or the next day or something, and we had read the same verse or the same chapter in Psalms on the same day or within 24 hours or something. And I just want to read it to you because at the time when they're saying they're singing hymns, likely singing and so part of me even wonders if this would have been one of the psalms that they were singing as their fellow prisoners were overhearing them. So I just want to read uh, Psalm 91 for us really, really quickly. Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction of the, uh, that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. 
because you have made the Lord Yahweh your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Man, can you imagine being a prisoner and seeing these two crazy Jewish dudes next to you singing? And they're singing that. And you're thinking, you're already in prison, dude. (laughs) You're already locked up. Something bad has already befallen you. What are you singing for? Mm. You know, um, Tertullian, who uh, was a a church father, uh, if you've ever thought of the Trinity, um, Tertullian was uh, a key leader in um, helping develop the theology of the, of the Trinity and very familiar with suffering. He said, the legs feel nothing in the stalks when the heart is in heaven. Man, this is the same guy that said, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. He's familiar with pain. He's familiar with brokenness. He's familiar with suffering. What a quote, what a quote, man. The legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. I think that quote really shows how important it is to have an eternal perspective. Um, and it's not always easy to do. This week, was a, <clears throat> uh, this week was a really stressful week in our house. We, um, it was Tuesday night um, at midnight. I just handed Miriam off to Jill. Um, I went back downstairs to grab something and I got a, I got a call from Jill frantically saying something's wrong. Can you please come help me? I'm bleeding. Um, and I ran upstairs and there was, there was blood everywhere. There's blood all over the bed. We ran to the bathroom and she, if you don't know Jill's story, um, she's on blood thinners round the clock, um, because of a blood clot issue she had with her first pregnancy. Um, and she was just bleeding. It's been a month since she delivered and you know, what can we do? And man, those were some dark moments. Um, she's fine now. She's on watching here. Right. Um, but I was holding Miriam she's on the phone with the hospital with a nurse trying to figure out what to do. And we can't get the bleeding to stop. And I am pacing furiously in our bathroom, holding Miriam, throwing up just desperate prayers to heaven. Um, Just, I said, God, I can't tell my four-year-old her mommy's in heaven. I can't do it. I need you to intervene. I need you to hear the cries of your son. I need you to move now. Please, Lord. 
Um, and the nurse that was on with Jill said, Hey, try uh, doing the fundal massage. And Jill did, and the bleeding stopped and or slowed greatly. Um, and we called uh, one of the gals in our community, Kareen, who's a labor and delivery nurse as well. Jill is as well. Um, and she ran over and grabbed Jill and I stayed with the kids and they went to the hospital and it's just a tense few hours sitting by myself, holding the baby, um, in my house at like one in the morning, two in the morning, waiting to find out what's going on. And the whole time this sermon's running through my head, Paul and Silas in prison worshiping. It, it just won't leave. You ever want to be convicted by a sermon, just try preaching it, right? And I just think, Lord, you're, you're still good. I still worship you. I still glorify you with everything I've got. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. But that's, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. They were worshiping. They, they didn't know an earthquake was coming. They didn't know freedom was at hand. They were bruised. They were bloody. They were broken. And they were still worshiping. Um, just to wrap up the story so you know we're okay, Jill went into the hospital, or she was in the hospital and had a procedure the next day and um, uh, took care of the bleeding. And I got to bring her home like at two in the afternoon the next day. And that was Wednesday. And she's been home and resting and totally fine since then. Um, but it's just crazy how how fragile life is and how quickly things can go from totally normal to really, really scary. Um, man. And just the story of Paul and Silas ringing through my head, worshiping while bloody and broken. Then the earthquake happens, right? And the prison doors fall open, all the shackles fall off. And the prison guard thinks everyone's escaped. And so he's about to kill himself, which the reason he would do that, by the way, is the way the Roman system is set up. This guy is probably a retired Roman soldier who got some land and is just working as a prison guard, as the you know head of the prison or whatever, to just you know keep paying bills and you know keep his family happy. And uh, he knows that any escaped prisoner's conviction, any, any, any other sentence basically falls on him. So if they're sentenced to 40 lashes, he gets 40 lashes. If three prisoners escape that are sentenced to 40 lashes, he gets 120 lashes, you know? And he thinks the prisons crumbled, all the prisoners have escaped. I'm just going to take my life. Um, and then Paul stops him and, uh, you know, they go to his house and, the man, the man and his whole family become saved. And it's just this beautiful resolution, um, beautiful resolution to the whole story. Um, and then afterwards, I just want to read uh, verse 35. On his day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And we don't know why they said this. We don't know if they had heard what happened, that uh, the prison guard had taken back to his house, or if they thought, yeah, we beat these guys. They spent a night in prison. Hopefully they won't cause any more trouble. We don't know what, exactly why they were saying that. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. Now, <clears throat> part of the reason they were afraid when they heard that uh, is because uh, the, the, there's a quote from Cicero about it. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. 
To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. I mean, it's basically what they thought is we've got a couple Jews, they're causing problems. Let's, let's beat the tar out of them, throw them in prison. No need for a trial, no need for jurisprudence. Let's just do our thing. And then they found out they had done that to Roman citizens and they were terrified. Um, so verse 39, they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And that is the story of Philippi. And it really is such an interesting story with so many twists and so many turns. Um, and, and from it, I want to draw two takeaways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number one, the work of God does not always look the way we think it should, but we are always called to join him in his work. <coughs> right? They received a call from a man in Macedonia. Instead, they find a woman out of the river. They confront evil powers and then are, streaked, are stripped, beaten, and imprisoned. I mean, think of for the first small group. You have a rich lady, a demon-possessed girl, and a suicidal jailer. <laughs> that would be, can you imagine, like, all right, now you, can you tell your story, please, right? That's how the church has started. That's not my church planning strategy. That's not what comes into my head. But the work of God does not always look the way we think it should. You know, years later, um, Paul writes a letter uh, to the Philippians, and he says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. They literally went and just planted the church and then left like within a month. I mean, what a crazy way to plant a church. If, if, if there was a, a guy who came to me, it's like, Hey, I want to plant a church. I want to go into the city. Um, I want to, you know, kick it at the river for a few weeks and then get beaten up, thrown in prison and then leave. I would say that's not a great strategy, but Paul has this faith that he who began a good work in these people, in these partners of the gospel, will carry it on, will continue the work that he's done. Man, it's just such, it's such a beautiful thing. He trusts that God is faithful. Okay, lesson number one. Lesson two, we're called to worship in the dark. This is a this is a crazy time. Life life's hard. Not not just here globally, it's hard. And we can't control that. What we can control is our response. Paul and Silas knew that their imprisonment wasn't going to impede the movement of the gospel. God even uses imprisonment to advance his kingdom work. And right now Millions are out of work. The economy is, 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 is failing. Tens of thousands of people have died. And what are we called to do? 
are called to worship in the dark and see what God does. You know, I think that's something that we should step into right now um, is worship. And mics might not work. You know, you maybe won't be able to hear the guitar and who cares? We get to worship the living God together. We get to worship even in the dark and recenter our hearts and our minds on the Savior, on him who, who gave his life for us. That's what we get to do. And it's an honor and it's a joy. And who knows what earthquakes might come of it. But who's to work together? So let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for being with us. We thank you that you're our Lord, even when things are scary, even when things are hard, even when anxiety grips our heart, you are still the king and we live for you. And we want to take this time now to worship you, Jesus, because you're our Lord and we love you. We love you so, so much. And during this next time, um, we really want to give everyone opportunity to spend the next few songs worshiping as best fits you and those in your room. And so rather than taking communion all together um, at the same time over Zoom, we're going to say what we normally do and that the tables are open and go with those that you've come with um, and take communion at the right time. But let's take these moments, these songs to lift up our voices, to sing to our King, and to really, really worship while it's dark. Tables are open. Let's sing.